There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. November 17th, 1990 was the first Saturday of deer season in Michigan. Eager hunters took to the woods, including at the Fulton Game Area near Kalamazoo. Around 4.30 that afternoon, not long before sunset, two gunshots rang out, and not long after that, two hunters, Doug Estes and Jim Bennett, were found dead. A couple of days later, Jeff Titus, whose farm was directly adjacent to the state game area, found a shotgun near his property and turned it over to the sheriff. Jeff was investigated, but he said he'd been out hunting himself that day nearly 30 miles away, and witnesses attested to being with him. Jeff was cleared, but no other leads in the case panned out either, and the case went cold. Ten years later, the case was revived and reinvestigated by the recently formed Cold Case Unit. They immediately fixated on Jeff as a suspect, based mainly on his finding the shotgun and the fact that, since the murders had happened, he'd often brought the case up and talked about it with his co-workers at the VA, where he worked as a security officer. The witnesses who had supported his alibi were now either unable to testify or appeared unreliable at trial. Instead, the jury heard the prosecution's argument that many people had found Jeff's obsession with the killings disturbing and alleged that people who came near his property were met with threats. And in the end, their verdict was unanimous. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm Susan Simpson, host of the Proof and Undisclosed podcast, filling in for Jason Flom. We're here today with a case that's close to my heart. I began investigating it in 2020, along with Jacinda Davis and Kevin Fitzpatrick of Red Marble Media, when they were covering it for their TV show, Killer in Question. I also covered the case in my podcast, Undisclosed. There have been a few updates since then, so I'm really excited to share the story with you. And for you to meet our guest, Jeff Titus. Welcome, Jeff. Hi. And we also have with us Jeff's attorney and co-director of the Michigan Innocence Clinic, Dave Moran. Listeners might remember Dave from the Terry Caesar episode that Jason covered recently. Thanks for being here again, Dave. Thanks. Nice to be here. Jeff, before we talk about what happened in November of 1990, 
why don't you tell listeners about yourself? Well, I come from a family of nine kids. I'm the second oldest. There was four boys, a girl, and four boys. I started working on a dairy farm at 12 while I went to Penfield High School. I played football. I worked on the farm after school and on the summers. And then I went in the Marine Corps. And as a result of that, you had the honor of serving under the president. Yes. I was a military policeman in the Marine Corps. I was a White House security guard for President Nixon. Then I come home, went to college, and met my wife, my future wife, and got married in August of 79. And then you had your two daughters and ended up buying a beautiful old farmhouse on 80 acres in Fulton, Michigan. The house was built in 1873. And we went through and totally restored it. And we went through and put brass ceilings in, tin ceilings. The original windows still had wooden plugs in them. (laughs) I mean, it was old. And it was directly adjacent to the Fulton game area, state land where people can go and hunt. So Jeff, let's go back to November 17th, 1990, the opening Saturday of deer season. You were 38 at the time, and I know you're an avid hunter. So where were you hunting that weekend? I hunted the first two days at my house. The third day, I left and went hunting at the northern part of Calhoun County, north of Battle Creek, 27 miles away. And your friend Stan Driscoll was with you as well. The two of you hunted on two adjacent farms owned by family friends of yours, the Crandalls and the Shepherds. Yes, they're next to each other. Crandalls have like 1,500 acres. Shepherds have five to 700 acres, I think, something like that. So on that Saturday, the day of the murders, you were nearly 30 miles north of your place, around 45-minute drive by car. That was a pretty typical weekend for you in deer season, right? Well, Stan and me would hunt Crandalls. He would go to his spot. I would go to mine. Usually we're separated a ways. And Stan would get deer some years, some years he wouldn't. I always seem to get them. (laughs) I mean, I can shoot. And that night at 4.30, I thought I was shooting at a buck, but I hit a doe and went up to the farm, got my truck, come back, loaded it up with Stan. And then we left and waved to the farmer and went to Burger King to eat and then went home. And what did you and Stan find when you got back to your farm that night? We got back home. I talked to my wife and said we were going out back to take care of a deer. And where my woods was, there was all kinds of lights. So I drove over there and I introduced myself and said I was a police officer, which I was for the Veterans Administration. And I said, uh, you know, what happened? And they didn't really say much later. I learned that two people had been shot. In the Fulton game area, several hunters heard some shots fired, very loud shots fired in short succession. And when other hunters went to investigate, they discovered two bodies in the woods. And both had been shot in the back fatally by shotgun. The the wounds were different because there were different types of shotgun ammunition used on, on the two men. So it was within the game area, but it was less than 100 yards from the property line of the back of Jeff Titus's farm. I offered for them to go on my farm to drive back to the scene. And that's what the ambulance did later that night when they went back to get the bodies. Then I went down to my neighbors and told her what had happened. And that was between eight and nine. And both your neighbor, Bonnie Huffman, and her mother later told police that you'd stop by around 8 p.m. that night and visited with them for about 20 minutes. 
The police later confirmed that the two victims in the case were Doug Estes from Kalamazoo and Jim Bennett, who lived near Fulton in Leonidas. They had both gone to the Fulton game area that day separately to go deer hunting, and they did not know each other. Their bodies had been found about 100 feet behind your property line, Jeff. Both been shot in the back, one of them with buckshot and the other with a slug. Not long before sunset, Doug Estes' 18-year-old stepson, who'd been hunting with him, had heard two shots ring out. He thought maybe his stepdad Doug had shot a deer, so after a bit, he went up looking for him, to hopefully help him carry a deer back. Instead, he found the two bodies lying on the forest floor. The next day, the police did a grid search that went out about 70 feet in every direction from where the bodies were found. Jeff, what were they looking for? They were searching for a missing gun, and they said that they were never more than two feet apart walking that whole wood area. Now, the day after that, I walked back. I was checking my traps. I walked over to that area and found a shotgun. I went up, never touched it. Went up, called the sheriff's department. I said, I just found a shotgun back on state land. And I don't know if it's related to what happened or whatever. Then, like I say, I called the press and let them know. And uh, then the police come out. I showed them where it was at. And, you know, it made me a suspect because I found it. And that's when things started. That shotgun turned out to have belonged to Doug Estes. It had been moved away from the bodies. Fairly close to your property line, actually. Not on your property, but much closer than the bodies were. And at first, the police said, well, we would have found it if it was there. But as later it was determined, their actual notes suggest they didn't search the area where you did find the shotgun. But for obvious reasons, you were a suspect, at least one of the suspects in the case. And there were two detectives who were working on it, Bruce Rosima and Roy Ballot. What did they do to look into you? They went to Shepherd's Dairy Farm in Crandall's and talked to them. They did the statement they took from Shepherd's. Shepherd signed it, and both detectives signed it, saying that I was there and never left that night. So at this point, the police knew that they had the owners of the farm where you were at, the Shepherds, saying that you'd been there hunting at their farm until a little after sunset, when you and Stan packed up and left. They also know that the two victims in the case were killed a little before sunset, around 4.30 p.m. So at the time that they were killed, you had these alibi witnesses saying that you were there at this farm north of Battle Creek, a 45-minute-plus drive away. And my vehicle was parked right behind their house. And you cannot leave that house without making noise because they had a crushed stone driveway. They would have heard me leave. Yeah, so on the strength of this alibi, the original detectives, where Seema and Ballot, had excluded you as a suspect. Now, there were other suspects in the investigation, including a man who had run his car into a ditch off the side of the road near the Fulton game area in the aftermath of the murder, but that lead, along with others, fizzled out, and the case pretty soon went cold. Now, even though you'd been cleared as a suspect, there were still people in the community who either thought you might have done it, or at least would spread rumors about you to that effect. Right. And you also had a habit of talking about the case. You'd mention it in conversation, and it was something that came up a few times at your workplace as well. People would ask me questions about the case where I worked, and I would say this or I would say that, and they would hear it in a way that they wanted to hear it. And like I say, I, and I told them, I said, I didn't do nothing. I was another place hunting, and I'm innocent. But these people turned around and started calling, you better look at Jeff Titus. 
The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So eight years go by. And then in 1998... The Kalamazoo County Sheriff's Department forms a new cold case unit. They're tasked with looking into some of the area's cold cases, of which there were quite a few at that time. They had had some initial successes. I think they'd solved around eight cases. And they were very proud of their 100% success rate, as they called it. But Dave, as you and I have talked about, cold case units often feature in wrongful convictions, and there are broader problems with how they operate. Can you take a minute to explain that? I do think that the problem with some cold case units and particularly this one, is to justify their existence that they have to not only go back and look at old cases, but they have to purport to solve them. If they go back and say, yep, that one's, that one's a toughie, there's, there's really nowhere to go with it. And they do that in case after case. Well, people are going to wonder why are we funding this exercise in futility in the first place? And so there's a real problem of pressure, internal or possibly external, for a cold case team to come up with a solution. And then you've got a team like this that claims 100% hit rate. And so now they've, they've got to solve every case that they look at. They've got to fit round pegs and square holes and square pegs and round holes in order to keep that record up. And we'll talk later on about how that tunnel vision mentality came into play in Jeff's case. But in 1999 or so, they decided to reopen the case of the Fulton Game Area Deer Hunters. And then in 2000, Jeff, you received a subpoena. And then I went to Kalamazoo, talked to them. And then when I got done, he said, well, we got a search warrant for your house. So they followed me back to my house. When I got back there, the bomb squad was there. The FBI was there. The sheriff's department was there. The different police departments were all there. And then each took a section of my barns and houses and rooms and started searching. And what was some of the evidence, as they put it, that they found on your property? Had the newspaper articles of when I found the gun. And then... My videos of being a Marine Corps sniper, my thing on a ghillie suit, the movie sniper. Yeah, the movie based on that Tom Clancy novel, right? Right. But they, you know. They had that as evidence that you were inclined to commit murder. Right. Yeah, the cold case team, well, they did a very thorough, in some ways, investigation. They talked to a lot of people. And I know from following their footsteps and trying to retrace all their interviews, 
just how much ground they covered. And what they managed to find was a lot of people who told them. Didn't like me. A lot of people who didn't like you, yeah, and who said that you had said things that they thought could make you look guilty. See, I had a house that was out in the country. I had no neighbors for a quarter mile each way. And one of the things I said is, if you come to my house and break in, I'll be picking up your body parts when I come home because my house was wired and I was a demolitions expert. Well, that didn't go over with people, but I'd never had a break in. But to clarify, your house was not actually wired. No, no, it was not. When Jacinda and I were investigating your case, we interviewed one of the detectives from the cold case team, Detective Workama, as well as one of the prosecutors, Stu Fenton. And I remember Detective Workama described something about his investigative technique that he called waking a memory. That's his process of going to a witness, talking to them once, and then going back to them as many as six or seven more times, each time with a little more information and feedback from other witnesses, giving the witness a chance to basically tell a better story. And according to Workama, this was an effective technique because it managed to get witnesses to say things that they would not have originally remembered. On the other hand, though, this could certainly have the effect of getting witnesses to change their statements to come up with things that match the detective's version of events, even if it contradicted what the witnesses originally remembered happening. And that brings us to Bonnie Huffman and her mother. Those were your neighbors that you'd gone to see that night to tell them about the murders. During the original investigation, Bonnie told Detective Worsima that you'd come by around 8 p.m. that night. Right. Bonnie Huffman and her mother both said I was there between 8 and 9 that night. Because it was after the ambulance come to my house that I went down there and I told them what was going on. However, when the cold case team did their investigation and went back to talk to Bonnie Huffman again and again, they managed to awaken a memory, a new one, where she said first that she saw you at 6.15 and then that she saw you at 5.30 that afternoon. So very shortly after, within a half hour to an hour of when the murders had happened. She said it was just getting dark when I pulled in the yard. Now. If I would have been there at that time, and she said I stayed like 20 minutes, then it would have been totally dark. Right. The deer hunt ends at dusk when it's too dark to hunt any longer, and that's when the shepherds said you and Stan took off from their place. But the cold case team came up with a theory of their own to account for that. What did they say happened? Well, they decided that I had this feeling that there was guys trespassing on my property. I went down there, confronted them, shot them, stole their deer, and drove back to Shepherd's, and then left with that deer. But now, we stopped at Burger King. We had a receipt. At 6.45, we left. We called Stan's wife, and there is a receipt showing that. If it takes me 40 minutes to get back there, and then it's another time limit to get down to the Burger King, it don't make sense. Yeah, the cold case team believed that the original investigators had not adequately vetted your alibi. Their crucial realization was that although you had people who could vouch for the fact you were hunting at the shepherd's farm, those people couldn't vouch for the fact that they had seen you at the exact moment when the murders happened. Because when you're hunting, you're going into the blind, you're out alone. So at the time the shots were fired, the time Estes and Bennett were killed around 4.30 p.m., you weren't standing next to Stan. You were out in the woods in a blind waiting for deer. So to the cold case team, your alibi was not actually an alibi. In their version of events, you had time to sneak away from the shepherd farm, drive back to your property, find and shoot the two men at around 4.30 p.m., steal the deer one of them had shot, drive back to the shepherd's farm, meet up with Stan, stop at Burger King, and then drive back to your place. Oh, and between all of that, after shooting the men and stealing their deer, 
you had time to stop by your neighbor's place for a casual 20-minute chat. Yep. That's what they say. Ludicrous. So having done that drive, I, I would have to agree. But the cold case team didn't see it that way. So on December 12th, 2001, you were arrested and taken to jail, where you remained until the trial started the following June. You had an attorney, Bill Fetty. What did he do to help prepare for your case? He hired a detective whose name was Swabash, and he was supposed to get with the original detectives and have them testify. Well, they never did that. Then they had asked about other things, and he would make phone calls questioning different things. And that's all I knew. So the trial began on June 26, 2002. The prosecutor at trial was Scott Brower. Dave, can you tell us about the trial? How did things go for Jeff? First of all, uh, he had a lawyer who charitably, I can say, is, is not very good. By the time that we got involved in the case years later, that lawyer had been disbarred and wasn't particularly cooperative with us. But the biggest problem in the trial was that the lawyer had never contacted Detectives Wiersema and Ballot, who had cleared Jeff way back in 1990, 1991. And so because he hadn't talked to them, he didn't have their evidence. He didn't do the obvious thing, which is, detective, you thoroughly investigated this case with your partner. What conclusions did you reach about Jeff Titus? And because he didn't contact him, he also wasn't able to use a workaround for the shepherds, both of whom were supposedly unavailable to testify because of their mental state. They said that the shepherds had dementia, but it was only him, not her. She was sharp as a whip, and she could have testified, but she, they, she was never called. But both shepherds had written out and signed a statement just a few weeks after the killings, confirming that Jeff was there. And that statement should have been able to come in through the testimony of the detectives who took it. But again, because Jeff's very poor defense attorney didn't even interview the detectives who had cleared his client in the first place, the jury never heard about any of that. But not only had they not been interviewed by Jeff's defense lawyer, they hadn't even been interviewed by the cold case team. So the two guys who had done the initial investigation clearing Jeff were just left out in the wilderness while this train went through the station and, in our opinion, went off the rails. So the only alibi witness the jury heard from in Jeff's defense was Stan. And Stan, unfortunately, was not the best of witnesses. It made it worse. Stan was a very problematic witness and from the transcript. It sounds like you know he, he doesn't want to cooperate. He wants to nitpick at questions. And I, I met Stan on a couple of occasions, and that's just the way he was. That, that's the way he talked. But I think to the jurors who were there, it comes across like he's hiding something. And so it, it was just a memorably bad alibi witness. And then, of course, Jeff's alibi was undermined by Bonnie Huffman's testimony, or as Detective Workama would say, her awakened memory, that Jeff had been by to see her at around 5.30 that day. Right. And again, that's an area where the defense lawyer's failure to even interview Detectives Wiersema and Ballot was fatal because had he interviewed them, he would have learned that they spoke with Bonnie Huffman and her mother just days after the killings, and that they told the detectives that the conversation with Jeff happened around 8 p.m., so hours, hours after the killing. But because he didn't even interview those, those detectives, Bonnie's changed testimony that the conversation happened hours earlier, as early as 5.15, was unrebutted other than the fact that her mother testified to the original timeline. But even with that piece of information, the defense lawyer's performance was simply lousy. 
he didn't make a big deal about how they had given a prior statement at 8 p.m. that the, the mom was still saying it was 8 p.m. He just let it go. Just a atrocious job. There was also the prosecution's theory that Jeff had wiped the shotgun clean when he found it in the woods. Their story, of course, is that Jeff did not just find it in the woods. Rather, he had taken it from the crime scene after committing the murders and then wiped all the fingerprints off and then pretended to find it. They also had a seemingly endless stream of Jeff's co-workers who came in to say they'd overheard Jeff or talked to Jeff about the murders and he'd said things that were allegedly incriminating or weird. Just things that Jeff would often say struck them the wrong way. No, I think Jeff will admit he's a talker. And two of the things Jeff was very interested in is hunting. So he often talked about hunting and, and killing animals. And he often talked about the murders that had happened near his property line and how they remained unsolved. And over the years, in the minds of the cold case team, that became evidence that he'd committed the crime because, you know, who else but the killer would like to talk about it? And then there were the witnesses who, who claimed to have had confrontations with Jeff after they had trespassed onto his property from the game area. And that was, that was pretty much the prosecution's entire case was he had confronted trespassers before. He talked about the killings and Bonnie Huffman now claiming that he was actually in the vicinity around 515. So Bill Fetty, Jeff's attorney, was really just phoning it in, apparently. But he did raise one significant issue at trial, something that, had it been fully explored by the original investigators, might have actually brought this case to a close back in 1990, because there was an alternate suspect in the case. Yeah, and that's the guy who was seen with his car stuck in a ditch near the game area not long after the shots were heard that turned out to be the fatal shots that killed Mr. Estes and Mr. Bennett. Right. So this man was seen with his car stuck in a ditch by a number of people, including a neighbor of Jeff's named Helen Knopf's and her son. When they saw the car stuck there, they'd stopped and offered to call police, but he turned them down, saying he didn't need any help and that he'd get his car out somehow. They would describe this man to the police as being nervous and sweaty. The car, they said, was a blue or black hatchback, similar to a Chevy Monza. And the guy said the car belonged to his wife. A composite sketch of this ditch guy, as we took to calling him, was drawn based on their descriptions. It shows a white man, maybe in his 30s, wearing aviator glasses and an orange stocking cap, as if he'd been out hunting. Police posted the picture and even got some calls about it, but they weren't able to locate Ditch Guy, and eventually the lead was dropped. But that was an obvious alternative suspect, somebody who just committed the murders and was driving away at a high rate of speed and failed to make a curve uh, and went into the ditch. At trial, Jeff's lawyer had a theory as to who the guy in the ditch might have been, but really didn't have any evidence to back it up. So there wasn't much there to sway the jury. Nope. They did deliberate, though, for several days. Finally, they come back and said that I was found guilty. And I was in a state of shock. I, I couldn't believe it. I looked at my family, and they couldn't believe it. And then I was gone and taken back to the jail. And then three days later, I was in prison. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I was sentenced to life in prison with no parole. And I was devastated. I have always been an honest and law-abiding type person. I mean, like I say, I was a police officer, I guarded the president and everything. And to turn around and be said that I was guilty of something I didn't do, it was, it was horrible. I felt like I was violated. And then I, like I say, I went to prison. And that was really a culture shock. What'd you do while you were in prison to survive and to pass the time? I worked as a tutor first. I had my college degree, so I was teaching people how to do stuff. And I taught basic GED. Then I took a horticulture course, did it in a month, and became a tutor. When I left there, I was starting to make greeting cards. I had wildlife cards, which was my forte because I loved the outdoors. I made religious ones. I had thinking of yous. I had birthdays, sympathy, but I made all kinds. I would be doing that every day to pass the time. I sold them for buck and a half to two dollars to inmates because we don't make much money. 74 cents a day, a dollar 14 a day, something like that, to be a tutor or a custodial or working a child. And during that time, you were also working on your post-conviction appeals with an attorney named Peter Van Hoek. You filed a habeas petition, which unfortunately was denied by a federal district court, and then again in the Sixth Circuit. And then the Michigan Innocence Clinic got involved as well. Dave, how'd you hear about Jeff's case? When I first heard of the case was in, I believe, late 2011, possibly very early 2012, when Detectives Wiersema and Ballot contacted me and told me that there was a double murder in Kalamazoo County and that the wrong man was in prison. And they knew the wrong man was in prison because they had cleared him. And when Jeff was convicted, they were blown away. And they became Jeff's advocates because they knew the wrong man had been convicted. So, of course, we started digging into it. And within a fairly short time, we decided to take the case. And by the time we took it, we had a third decorated veteran officer on board on our side, Rich Madison, who was a member of the cold case team. And it turns out uh, he was a dissenter. And he, uh, he believed that the case against Jeff made no sense. And because he didn't go along, he was actually removed from the cold case team, at least for this case. They didn't want anybody who was going to challenge their preconceived notions. And so uh, Rich had some information that was also very helpful for us. So we filed a motion for relief from judgment, better known as a 6500 motion here in Michigan. 
And that's where we alleged a host of ineffective assistance claims for failing to interview the original detectives. And also a Brady claim, which is a claim based on failure to turn over evidence because nobody turned over to the defense the evidence about Rich Madison, the dissenting member of the cold case team, and how he had done some analysis showing that the cold case team's theory didn't make any sense, but uh, that wasn't turned over. And so the centerpiece of our theory in that post-conviction motion was that trial counsel was ineffective for failing to interview Wiersema and Ballot, and then call them as witnesses to make up for the fact that the Shepherds allegedly couldn't be called, and to explain how Bonnie Huffman's story at trial about the timing of her encounter with Jeff was completely inconsistent with what she and her mother had told the police before. And then there was the matter of Jeff finding the gun, which the prosecution had also brought up at trial. The prosecution made a big deal about Jeff finding the gun. And they said that there's no way that that gun was there before Jeff found it because the police had done this grid search. Well, Detective Wiersema showed us exactly where the gun was found, exactly where the bodies were found. And it was well more than 100 feet away. And so the grid search wouldn't have found it. So just imagine if the jury had been able to hear three different detectives up there, two of them saying that they'd investigated Jeff and cleared him back in 1990, and a third from the cold case unit saying that his team had gotten it wrong. The impact of that, I think, would have been incalculable. And so we had the evidentiary hearing in front of the judge, and we presented all three of those decorated police veterans, and yet the judge said no. And his reasoning was that none of it would make a difference because of all of those people at the VA hospital who heard Jeff talk about the crime. I mean, as if, as if the fact that Jeff talked about the crime without actually admitting he did it to all of these people at the VA hospital somehow overcame all of that. But that was the judge's ruling. But then in 2020, when I was investigating this case with Jacinda and Kevin, we learned of someone who'd actually been a suspect back in 1993, a guy named Thomas Dillon from Ohio. Dave, do you remember when I called you about him? Yeah, I do. It, it came completely out of the blue. You called me and asked if I'd heard of a guy named Thomas Dillon. And I said, no, should I have? And, and you proceeded to tell me about his work in Ohio. And I, I couldn't believe it. I did a, a search of the transcript of Jeff's trial and confirmed that the name Thomas Dillon had never come up once during his trial. That's right. Thomas Dillon, as we learned, was a serial killer with a very specific target. He hunted hunters. In fact, he'd killed one hunter the week before the Fulton State game area shootings, and he'd killed another the week after. He was ultimately convicted in 1993 of killing five hunters in Ohio, but he was also a suspect in a number of other killings in other states, including in the murder of Doug Estes and Jim Bennett. I think the moment that stands out to me the most from this case is the moment that I first saw a picture of Thomas Dillon. He is an absolute dead ringer for the composite sketch that was prepared by the two eyewitnesses who saw Ditch Guy. Yeah, it's stunning. When we saw the side-by-side comparison of a photo of Dillon after he was arrested with drawings of, of the man in the ditch, it was a dead ringer. And here's where things get really weird. In 1993, not long after Dillon was arrested, Detective Worsema had actually brought Helen Knopf and her son down to Ohio to view a lineup, which included Dylan. They were shown the lineup separately and told that if they recognized the man from the ditch, to write the number of that man down on a piece of paper and hand it over, which they both did. And what Jacinda and I learned from those Ohio files is that Helen and her son had both ID'd Thomas Dillon as the ditch guy. But because this fact was never revealed to the Michigan authorities, Worsema thought there was nothing more to pursue there. In fact, he'd told the Ohio authorities, hey, we just want to know if this guy was involved. We won't prosecute. We just want to know who did this. And Ohio refused to cooperate with them. And there's more. 
As we went on, we discovered that Dylan's wife owned a car that was a small gray hatchback. In fact, it was almost exactly the car that the witnesses had described and which the ditch guy had said was his wife's car. Dylan had also used that car to commit some of his murders. We also learned that the day before the murders, Dylan had borrowed two shotguns from two different co-workers. When he'd returned them the following week, he told both co-workers that he'd shot a deer with their gun. And the two guys in, in the uh, game area were killed with apparently two different types of shotgun ammunition. I also found some notes showing that after Dylan's arrest, he'd been bragging to his cellmate, Mike Chappelle, about his life of crime and the people he'd killed. And he even told him about what he called his double header, where he'd killed two hunters in one event. But when Chappelle told the authorities what Dylan had said to him, they did nothing. One of the reasons for that seems to have been that the FBI had developed a profile that said Dylan would never kill two people at once because he was too much of a coward. So despite what Chappelle told them about the confession, the authorities in Ohio ruled Dylan out in this case. In addition to that, Dylan had an alibi, or so they thought. So I went to the Kalamazoo County Sheriff's Department and searched the entire file for the Estes and Bennett killings. And I spent hours and hours going through it. Very near the end of my search, I found this thin little manila envelope in the back of one of these giant red ropes. Somebody had written serial killer on it. And it had about 30 pages of materials, mostly the materials that we've already discussed, the the identification procedures in Ohio, which Novson and her son picked him out, the, the borrowed shotguns, the description of the wife's car, the sketch, all of that. But it also had math calculations. And it turns out that that morning of November 17th, 1990, Dylan had gone hunting in Ravenna, Ohio, on a piece of private property, and he got a deer that morning, and then he checked out of the the game reserve very shortly after noon with his deer. And there were calculations that had been done by the police that purported to show that Dylan couldn't have made it from Ravenna to the Fulton game area in time to kill Estes and Bennett late in the afternoon. But those calculations were wrong in several respects. First of all, what they actually calculated was how long it would have taken to drive to Kalamazoo. They also assumed that he didn't leave the Ravenna game area until well after he'd he'd actually checked out. And they also assumed that he drives scrupulously within the speed limit the entire time, which nobody in the Midwest does. And so if if you took away those silly assumptions and just entered in, how long does it take to get from the Ravenna grounds to the Fulton game area using Google Maps, he could have made it easily with almost an hour to spare without driving so fast that he would have attracted the attention of the police. So first, the cold case detectives concocted a near impossible round trip journey to prove Jeff guilty. And then they came up with an equally ridiculous math equation to clear Thomas Dillon of the murders. So right around the time we started our investigation, there was also a new development in Michigan. The Attorney General created a statewide conviction integrity unit, headed up by a former criminal defense attorney, Robin Frankel. So I immediately contacted Robin to tell her about two of our cases in particular, and Jess was one of those cases. And then eventually, Robin got some investigators, and the investigators started going out and interviewing witnesses, and then they interviewed Jeff himself. So the whole process took years of investigation and patience. But this whole time, we had a habeas petition pending. And so we agreed with the Conviction Integrity Unit to put the habeas on hold while the Conviction Integrity Unit did its thing. So after years of investigating and then waiting, they finally got to the point where they agreed that the conviction had to be vacated. And so we drafted a stipulated 
order for the federal judge to sign granting the habeas corpus petition so Jeff would be released and the conviction would be vacated and his sentence would also be vacated. And then finally, in February of 2023. February 16th. The 15th was my 71st birthday. The next day, the students, call. I called them and they said, Jeff, we're all together, all three students, as they said they would be. And I said, are you telling me you got good news? And they said, yes. And then I started bawling like I'm doing now. And I know your release got delayed a few more days, unfortunately. There was an ice storm, among other things. But on that Friday morning, the 24th of February, what finally happened? Well, at 1030, they said, Jeff, we're here to take you up front. I said, it's happening. And so they took me up front. 12 o'clock, I walked out. I hugged Jacinda. I hugged Dave. And the other two students that were there, Naomi and Olivia. I was still in a shock that it happened. I mean, even listen to me, I sound like I was crying. I sure remember that day. And I know that Roy Ballot, one of the original detectives in the case who passed away a year ago, would have been there too if he could have been. But his two sons, in his honor, made it a point to drive through the ice storm to be there when you came out. Both of them were there, and they had their dad's badges and their police ID. And they said, here, hold our dad's ID. They held their badges. and. We had pictures taken. So Jeff, I know it's only been a few weeks now, and I'm sure it's been a whirlwind. What have you been up to since you've been out? The past month, I have been organizing my cards to sell them. I have been trying to get some kind of ID so I can open a bank account and just trying to get caught up on the things that I need to do to move my life along. And I know you're loving getting to be outdoors again. Oh, yeah. I've seen as many as 15 deer in the yard. I've had eight gobblers with great big long beards. I've kicked up bunny rabbits. I have all kinds of squirrels. I feed the birds. And I mean, the one day I had 14 cardinals out there, all males. So Dave and Jeff, what's next? Are there any current projects that you guys are working on or any Michigan issues that you're hoping to address now? Sure. Well, um, Jeff's case isn't quite over. The uh, prosecution hasn't actually dismissed the case against Jeff. So that needs to happen. And then there may be some issues, systemic issues that we may have Jeff come in and talk about. We do press in the Michigan Innocence Clinic for systemic reform, for example, improved eyewitness identification procedures, improved forensic science issues. And sometimes we we have exonerees come in and, and testify to legislative committees or state Supreme Court, which makes rules about ways in which the system went wrong and how it hurt them. Well, thank you so much for your work on Jeff's case. We'll have a link to the Michigan Innocence Clinic in our bio in case any of our listeners want to help support the great work that you and your students are doing. And now we come to the part of our show called Closing Arguments. First of all, thank you both for being here. Jeff, it has been an honor to help tell your story. And I'd like to hear from each of you just your final thoughts, anything at all that you'd want to say to our listeners. Dave, why don't you go first? Sure. Well, this is one of the craziest cases that we've ever handled in the Michigan Innocence Clinic. There just aren't too many cases like this where you have such a ludicrous theory as to how and why the alleged perpetrator committed the crime. And so the lesson to be drawn from this case is that is that you can get a jury under the right circumstances to convict somebody based on the most ridiculous, absurd evidence or lack of evidence and crazy theory. And, and it takes years and years and years to undo that injustice. Thank you. 
And like I say, it's an honor to be here on this show and to tell my, excuse me, I'm starting to cry again, to tell my story. And what happened to me was truly a miscarriage by my defense attorneys, by the cops, and so on and so forth. Because the stuff was there and it was ignored. I said, I'll take true serum. I'll take hypnosis. I'll take an extensive polygraph to show that I'm telling the truth. I mean, I spent 20 years fighting to get out. And it shouldn't take that long for a guy that was innocent. People have asked me, well, do you have anger? I said, no. I might be mad, but I can't let that anger eat me and keep eating at me because then I'm not going to heal. And so I go on with my life. I do what I do. I do the interviews. I took people out and showed them in the woods what I like doing. I show them my cards and scratch art, and I just be myself. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Susan Simpson. Thanks to executive producers Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis for inviting me to be here. And thanks also to our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production comes from three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can find me on Twitter at The View from LL2 and Instagram at SOOSIMP. And you can listen to my podcast, Proof and Undisclosed, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast, in association with Signal Company Number One. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.